Welcome to Marin Costello Radio, where we have intentional conversations with impactful people. Your weekly dose of motivation, inspiration, and entrepreneurship. Join me as we explore the ins and outs of building and running a business, interview leaders across all industries, and find the common denominator beneath it all. Welcome to Marin Costello Radio. Friends, there are no words to describe how excited I am for today's interview. My dear friend of many years, Rachel Brown, the incredible artist, is on the show. Rachel, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Of course. Of course. I'm going to read a short bio written by Rachel. I'm a full-time artist based out of Austin, Texas. My work is inspired by my love of animals and travel, two of my favorite things. All of the pieces are made to be mixed and matched and are created to inject life and personality into a room. I was raised on a farm in rural central Missouri and hail from a long line of creative women. My mother, a watercolor artist, began teaching me the fundamentals at a very young age. My grandmother, a folk painter, taught me color theory and equally as important, her dairy farmer's work ethic. Along with undergrad work at the University of Missouri, I also received training in contemporary realist portraiture and have participated in various artist residencies, including a month-long painting residency in New Delhi, India. I received my first break into the art and design world when I collaborated with Studio Collective Design to create over 200 pieces of original artwork for the Lansby Hotel in Sylvain, California. My work also lives in collections in London, Paris, Denmark, Dubai, and Japan. Some of my most notable collectors include Hilary Duff, Mr. Brainwash, Stephen Baldwin, and Julia Roberts. I recently collaborated with Fabric Hut and S. Harris to create a wallpaper collection. Beyond painting wall art, I have also experimented with other creative collaborations, and my most recent product line can be found in Barnes & Noble. Oh my goodness, Rachel, you are such a big deal. (laughs) I mean, I knew this because you're my friend, but like, you're such a big deal. Feeling is mutual, girl. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So Rachel and I originally met through Netta Jones, who was on, who's been on this podcast before. She is an incredible former business consultant. And she also is the um, CEO and host of the Liberty for Her podcast and brand. And Rachel and I first met there, but then after seeing each other at our local church, when we both formerly lived in Los Angeles, that was kind of the aha moment of, oh, this is my people. Like you've been vetted by Netta and also God. So So let's be friends. And we've just stayed in touch. How have you been? I haven't spoken to you in so long. A lot has happened since we last spoke. Tell me everything. We're still living in LA. I was, I was still LA. transitioning from LA to New York with a kind of a pit stop production stop in Missouri in my hometown. Um, I temporarily moved my production to Missouri. Um, the space opened up in my hometown. It was actually where my first job was. I was in a pizza place and the pizza place had closed down. So the space opened up. Uh, the landlord gave me a sweetheart of a deal is basically the cost of a storage unit in <laughs> New York City. So I jumped on it and um, I had a, a girl there that was fulfilling everything. All the orders taught her to print and everything. And she just started nursing school. So I lost her, but um, told her there's always a job waiting for her if she ever gets <laughs> burnt out in nursing. So totally. So you're I, based in Austin, Texas now, yeah. but is the, is your production warehouse still in Missouri? It's not. I moved it all to Texas. So it's nice to have it in one state. Finally, um, I, the thought of moving it all to New York city, which we didn't know how long we were going to be there. My fiance's business is there. He's actually there currently, but 
that was not the long-term goal to like put down our roots in New York city. So I did not want to move all of my equipment and production facility and all that to New York and then have to move it out a year later. So it's all in Texas now, which Amazing. is pretty great to have it and not under one roof, but under one state. At least. <laughs> at least. Totally. And how long have you been in Austin, in Austin proper? Almost exactly a year. It's amazing. Bought our house here about a year ago and then moved here like October 1st of, of 2020. That's so. incredible. So you and I obviously met in our adult life and thank goodness, because I was such a strange child. <laughs> I don't know if we would have been friends when I was a child. So I'm curious, what was little Rachel like? She's, she's kind of bad. <laughs> One of my grandmothers, my mom just reminded me of the story. She um, refused to babysit me um, without my brother. Oh my gosh, that how funny. Really, really naughty. Um, I think it was a little understimulated out on the out on the farm. Um, yeah, I always needed to be once I was doing projects and have my hands and things, I was I was well behaved, but was pr pretty naughty, but creative and had a wild imagination. Always I had a wonderful mom and dad that tried tried their hardest to keep me occupied. <laughs> I loved I loved when you did your your trade show tour essentially across the states I feel like you've done it you did it multiple times it was such yeah. a pleasure to watch you and your parents do your build outs for your trade shows and you know erect these incredible experiences within the trade shows my my parents are incredible they they were always big on kind of DIY stuff. I say they're the original hippies. Like we always were in the garden. We didn't, we had like three TV, I mean, stations and we didn't do video games. We were not, I mean, that was, I guess, before screen time was really a big deal, but we were not doing that even, even back then. So one of my favorite summer projects my dad had us do, he brought home a roll of AstroTurf and he said, all right, summer project, is you get to make a mini golf course. He like showed us our parameters in the backyard. He was like, don't get into the good part of the yard, but you could have like all of this back here. We lived out in the country. So it was, there was ample space, but he basically challenged us to build the best miniature golf course we could. And we would have him bring home random things from work. And it was, I think that that's what got the, the wheels turning as far as being an artist. And my brother has a, an interesting job as well, so. So your parents are very hands-on and very creative. Where do you feel like your entrepreneurial side comes from or was that self-taught? Um, they, they actually do not have it. My mom is a teacher and my dad worked for a gas company. And my mom always says if she would have known that being an artist was an option to, that you could do that full-time, she would have encouraged that, but she didn't know where I grew up. You don't meet too many artists that are doing that at, or at all. <laughs> full time. So, um, I had an uncle that was really encouraging of it. When I told him I was going to be a teacher, he was like supportive because it's a noble profession and that's what everyone in my family always did. But he was like, I, he was the one who pushed me to like, think outside of the box a little bit. And it wasn't until actually an ex-boyfriend of mine had a business and he was like, I think you have what it takes. He was very, very supportive of, of me starting out on that path. And I think all it takes sometimes is one person that believes in you and encourages you to to do that. And if somebody else believes, sees that in you, you know, sometimes it takes that to see that in yourself. So totally. What was your first experience with entrepreneurship? Like how long ago did you realize that being an artist was something that you wanted to make your career? Um, I would say I did a, I signed up for the Beverly Hills art fair 
and it was a financial disaster. <laughs> I lost, I think I lost like $7,000 doing it. Cause I had, I bought the booth. I bought the lights. I was like, all right, we're doing, we're doing this now. And I wasn't, hadn't taken a leap to do art yet. I was still doing graphic design and doing logistics for this military company. Another, another story for another day. But um, I, I still loved it. I lost a lot of money, but I, I loved it so much <laughs> that I still wanted to do another one. So I started doing these shows. I would sign up basically two times a year. And after the third one, I finally um, started making money doing it, <laughs> which is important if you're going to be an entrepreneur. But um, I never, I didn't take like a full leap into just doing art until I could financially support myself doing it. I did not have rich parents. I didn't have a spouse supporting me. It was, it was me. So I needed to make sure that I could do it and support myself and pay my rent before making the leap. It has been so inspiring to watch you because you have such an incredible balance of left brain, right brain. Was that, is that just God's gift to you or have you had to lean into and, and try and educate yourself on how to strengthen both sides? Definitely not naturally given. Um, I've more of a right brain, like I would say 80, 20 and the left side every day is a struggle, but you it's, it's kind of a non-negotiable. If you're running your own business, you have to get that stuff taken care of. So I'm a huge list person. I try to get the stuff that I hate doing first thing out of the way in the morning. And then it frees up my afternoons to do the creative stuff, which is, I never need motivation to do that. I definitely need motivation to do the accounting and invoicing and all of all of the fun stuff that it takes to be an entrepreneur as you know <laughs> totally so do you have a daily schedule do you have an am schedule or a pm schedule i do i mean i'm pretty fluid with it but um i do try to like block do like a midday workout that's like at noon and before that i as soon as i get up i'll Get, I'll start like tackling the stuff that I don't really want to do that I know I'll put off. And I usually start with Monday taking care of the stuff that I really don't want to do. And then I lighten my load as the week goes. And then I try to free up the afternoons to just do creative time. And that's commissions or working on new pieces, et cetera. That's amazing. We've, we've um, interviewed other guests who do the opposite. So I feel like this is such a, a great technique for our listeners to know that you know, it is, you have options of how you want to schedule your day and have it make it work for you. It, it works for me. I don't know if that works for everybody. My fiance is a morning person. So he gets up super early and does the creative stuff, his writing and everything in the morning, and then takes care of the admin stuff later in the day. But I need to, I need to strike when the inspiration's there. So <laughs> I love it. So you mentioned what, I'm curious, what was your career path before art and how long ago did you decide to go all in with art? I did not have a, a very clear career path. When I first started out, I was, I feel like I was kind of filling my time with, I was doing work in order to travel. I feel like up until 25, everything was about life experiences and making enough money, usually spending it right away, traveling and seeing the world and doing the things that 20 year olds should do. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I went to college. I just did, I did teaching. I did, I got a degree in art education, which I still have that in me. I love, I love kids and I love people in general, but it wasn't, it wasn't for me. I 
knew that it wasn't for me when I caught myself being envious that my students were getting to paint. <laughs> I was like, I want to be doing that, not actually, not, not teaching it. So um, I did teaching and then I got a degree in graphic design. And then I, uh, one of my clients that I was doing graphic design for um, started doing a like logistics company for the military. And I fell into that, which obviously <laughs> fine-tuned my left brain skills, but was not my true calling. So, <laughs> and did everything under the sun in LA. I mean, I did, I waitressed, I bartended, I did promotional events, all, all of the things that one does to, to pay the bills in LA, so. When did you move to LA? I was 25. 25. 26. Yeah. And it took about three years of being in LA and being around once I remember I went, I went to an art fair and I met an artist that was just doing art and I was so blown away that that's, that's all he did. I said, well, what's your, what's your side hustle? He's like, no, just art. And he was very kind and gave about 30 minutes of his time and, and greatly inspired me into signing up for the next show. So um, I, and I started selling at the flea market. I started selling at Melrose Trading Post. And that was, that was really what gave me the, um, so that's where I met most of the interior designers that I work with. And it gave me the inspiration to keep going and, and doing it. Because like I said, the first few shows were not a financial success at all. <laughs> so for those who might not be familiar with LA or Melrose Trading Post, it is a flea market, so to speak, that it happens every Sunday in the parking lot of a Los Angeles high school and all of the entrance fees goes back to the school. And when you say flea market, sometimes you don't think, you know, high end or, you know, you don't think of aesthetics, but this is a very, very well curated, beautifully designed flea market. Yeah. trade show kind of a thing and there's everyone selling from selling artwork to you know candle brands to artists to plants to furniture and you know a ton of like vintage clothing booths so it's just everything across the board but it's a great place as you know we're hearing now to get discovered it is and for me to kind of fine-tune what I was doing because the feedback is there immediately and I would get requests for things and I would come back with that the next week and I feel like it's a very cool crowd that knows interior design and they know what they like and their opinion and they'll ask for it so I did that for about three years and just really fine-tuned what I was what I was doing and did you do it every single weekend for three years I, I did every time I was in town and it was it was a grind and I feel like it was I never thought that I was above that though. I, I definitely had family members that were like, you're selling in a flea market. They were really pushing me to do the gallery route. And I was like, like if it, my friends that I knew that were going, that went the gallery route, they'd have a one painting that would sit there for months and then would sell. And it would, if it sold, they would get half, you know, 50% of it max. And I was like, I need, I need money to pay my bills like, like this week. So it was kind of an instant gratification, but it was, it was definitely tough. It was it's an early, early morning and a long day. But, but I just feel like you are like the epitome of a hustler. I mean, you just, from my perspective, would will do anything, you know, to get your art into the hands of people who love it. From flea markets to working with stores to commissions to, you know, all of the different collaborations that have come your way. Do you have a press team or someone that reaches out and gets those, or do you reach out and get those opportunities or do they usually come to you? 
I do not. I definitely should be more intentional about that, especially since all the sh- most of the shows have shut down. I've made all of my connections by actually being out on the ground in, in person, which is very old school, <laughs> but it, it works for me. I am loving working more like from my studio and in home versus being on the road all the time. Cause I was, I was getting pretty worn down doing that, but everyone that I met from interior designers to any of the stockists or licensing people is all from art shows and actually being there in, in person. So I always tell people, it's like, say yes for <laughs> until you can start saying no. So yes to everything until you can start saying no and being more selective about things. So I feel like I have been more selective lately and it's, saying no to more things than you're saying yes to. That's such great advice. (laughs) That's such great advice. What are all of the streams of revenue in your business? Yes. So they've, they've switched. I would say even a year ago, I would have said, or two years ago, I would have said like 60%, 60 to 70% would have been all from shows um, and in person. So as you know, I would like kind of travel around the country following these shows around and when all that shut down, it forced me to get my e-commerce game together. So now it's like 80% is online, which I hope, I hope it stays that way. <laughs> it's, it's a lot less work that way. Um, but I do miss the in-person in- engagement as well. So um, I do, it's uh, licensing as well. That's, I'm, the goal is to keep setting up passive income streams every year and getting those licensing things. So I license a wallpaper um, company with S. Harris and Fabricut. And then I have products uh, with a company called Studio O. And they do calendars and notebooks and pouches and all kinds of stationary things. So, and then commissions, um, I, that's like where people would custom order something uh, specifically like to their liking. And that's where I've started saying no to some <laughs> that, that if it's not a good fit I'll send them two friends that it's a better fit for so it's a win-win so totally um e-commerce licensing and custom commissions are like the four the four main ones so you did this incredible thing that I remember I remember witnessing this during the pandemic and I did a similar thing in my business where you know everything was shut down we kind of had to do what we could with the materials that we had in house or the archived yeah. pieces. And we created on my end, we did a sample sale for all of our, you know, one-off pieces, things that weren't in the larger collection, things like that. You did something similar. Can you speak to that? You, you inspired me to do that. Really? <laughs> yeah, you did. Love I, I love the, the sample sales that you do. And I, yeah, it's, what seems like I had so much stuff sitting around and piling up because I wasn't, I was still making every day, but I wasn't able to go out and sell things. So I piled them all together, photographed everything and did a, did a sample sale. I'm going to do another one this year too, before the holidays. Um, Amazing. And you crushed, I mean, you sold almost every piece. <laughs> I did. I was surprised. It was kind of one of those things you're like, it's a lot of work as you know, I mean, cause they were one, one of a kind things that you're not selling prints. It was to photograph everything, edit the photos, get them uploaded make sure the dimensions are right, you know, all, and I, it was just me. I wasn't having someone else fulfill them. So it was, it was a lot of work. <laughs> I probably won't do it. Do you do it quarterly? Yeah, biannually twice okay. a year. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. So I would <laughs> say on my, on my end, the pandemic, the, the, our sample sale, our warehouse sale was born of the pandemic, but it has become 
such an exciting thing that our customers look forward to that we decided to do it biannually. So now we prep for it year round, right? So now it's not just, you know, this mad dash. And it, similarly, it was just me because, you know, in LA, we weren't sure what, we didn't have any information on COVID. Like none of my staff could come to the office. We actually had to close the office down. And then I moved to a larger home. It was like so many moving parts and I was back in fulfillment, which is great and exciting, but something that I hadn't done in a long time. Um, you know, plus getting all the new products online and doing measuring and descriptions and all the fun things that, you know, essentially started the brand. Um, but now that we know that we, look forward to that twice a year. We actually prep for it pretty regularly. That's amazing. Isn't it, isn't it cool to see the things that actually grew from being in lockdown? I feel like it, it grew a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, it got me back to my roots of like doing all of the things. It was, it was good. (laughs) Totally. I definitely think it got me back to my roots as well. And, you know, this show was born of, of the pandemic and just, just taking inventory of what's important, you know, the people in your life that, that fill you up or the people that maybe, you know, don't, and that's okay. Um, it was a lot of, a lot of, um, taking inventory, so to speak. Ooh, yeah. On every level, right? (laughs) Mind, body, soul. Yep. Mind, body, soul. So your mom started teaching you the fundamentals of art when you were young, but when did you realize that this was, something that you were really passionate about? I, I always loved it. I never knew that I could do it and make a living at it. So in my mind, it was always, it was always a hobby and always something that I went back to. My identity was always in sports growing up just because that that's what it was. And art was, I would enter art competitions for posters and stuff like that, but I never, ever realized that it was something that I could do or was good enough to do it until I moved to LA and met other people that were, that were doing it. Um, so the passion is always there. It was just, it, it would take back, it would take a back seat in seasons of my life where I had to focus on other things. And I feel very grateful that it's at the forefront of my life and that I truly get to do it every day. And yeah. that's amazing. Right. I feel like that was a similar experience to me where, I mean, I've been making jewelry since I was, you know, younger than 10 and I didn't realize until my adult life after college being exposed to more of the PR industry, fashion industry, event industry that, oh, there's actually machines behind brands, you know, like there's, there's so much to like, of course, there's companies that produce art, there's companies that produce, you know, jewelry and things like that. But that just wasn't my, in my realm of knowledge when I was, you know, younger growing up in NorCal, pre-internet, pre-social media, just wasn't in my line of thought. I didn't even realize it was an option. When did you realize that it was, that was your, that was your path? I fought it for a very long time. I did. So I, my pieces were first featured on American Idol in 2008. My former dance teacher moved to Los Angeles and became, and she still is one of my dear friends and wardrobe stylists in Hollywood. And she pulled some pieces It ended up on American Idol. And back then that was just when social media was starting to gain traction. So still, um, you know, having your name on TV, being credited on TV, it was like Rebecca Minkoff, Michael Kors, Marin Costello, like in their prime. Um, So that was a big deal. And then I started getting calls from different companies, like, you know, tell us about your brand or blah, blah, blah. So it forced me to start my business, like get a business license as a sole proprietor. But 
I didn't understand that it could be a machine until much later. I would say, you know, I fought it and it was a glorified hobby of sorts and it was still profitable, but it wasn't something that I truly committed to until 2018. So it took me about 10 years of fighting it. That's, that's incredible. I didn't yeah. realize it was up until 2018 mm-hmm. that you were still. Well, I was doing other things. I had another full-time job. I had another full-time, you know, a full career in event production while I was doing, you know, jewelry. I didn't prioritize sleep in my 20s. So I, yeah. I had two full-time <laughs> jobs, um, you know, and then I, after, you know, going through a quarter-life crisis and asking myself, you know, if jewelry is really what I want to do, trying to remove myself from it, then I kept seeing opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And I thought, okay, God, you're trying to, you're trying to communicate to me this, the problem isn't the jewelry, the problem is the inner work or not the problem, but that's the journey that you need to, that you need to go through. And so I worked on myself and went all in with jewelry and now there's no looking back. And, and here we are. Here we are. So you started with your, with your first trade show um, that wasn't profitable and then continued with other trade shows. And, and then you, how long, what was the time frame in between doing those and regularly being, you know, uh, a featured booth at the Melrose Trading Post? By that point, I imagine that that was like a huge portion of your business plan, so to speak, was I'm going to sell my pieces every weekend. This is a great stream of revenue. What was that transition like? It was the only option that that was realistic that was right in front of me that I could like really do. I mean, obviously it was, the goal was to meet interior designers and to start, start the doing the things that I dreamed about. But in order to do that, you just just have to take the jump and get out there. And I feel like that's the biggest hurdle for a lot of artists is being scary and vulnerable to get your, to put your work out there and make it available for criticism and critique and people, you know, most people are very nice and encouraging, but definitely had some not very nice comments like, oh, my kid can do that. Or, you know, stuff like that. You have to develop a pretty thick skin when you're out there. And I feel like actually getting out in front of people is the, is the, it's scary, but it's the most important (laughs) first hurdle that an artist can do. And I'm sure it's that with jewelry as well, but it's just taking the leap. There's a million things you can tell yourself like, oh, I'm not ready yet. Or, oh, I need to get a full collection. And, you know, you can procrastinate. I I did that for several years until I was finally, okay, we're getting it out there and just going to pull, pull the trigger and, and be in front of people. And then once you get, I feel like once you make that first leap, it gets easier and easier every time and a lot less scary. Totally. Quick disclaimer, this episode is sponsored by my gardeners because they're (laughs) right outside of my window and they want to participate. So shout out to them. Is that a leaf blower? Yes. 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 They are, you know, just want to acknowledge them (laughs) for their contribution. What is your artistic process? What does that look like? You said that you use the afternoons to be creative. Are you always creative in the afternoon? What if you're not feeling creative? How do you encourage that side of yourself to come through? Yeah, my, I'm actually naturally a night owl. The stuff that I make that's more personal for, for me, that's not commissioned by somebody else. I usually do at night. Um, after dinner is like from seven to like midnight is usually my like personal creation time. Afternoons is usually doing stuff for clients. So like I've got 
two pieces going right now that are custom commissions. So I'll work on those in the afternoon. And then I try to do Fridays as well as just open create time in the afternoon into the evening. That's um, no agenda, just open time to create. And I think that's important, especially if you are working with clients and doing custom stuff often to have those margins in your time to just create stuff that's that's personal. I think that's what keeps me in love with what I do. If I was only doing custom client requests, I think I would get burnt out really quick. So it's I think it's very important in order to yeah stay motivated and inspired to have time that's just for creating new stuff. Regarding your custom clients, do you have a maximum amount of clients that you take per month? And also, do you book out? I do. I try to be realistic with the timeline and say, you know, if, if you want it, you want it cheap and fast, I'm probably not your person. <laughs> and I can refer you to other people that work faster and can kind of like crank, crank stuff out. I used to work that way. Now I take on more complicated commissions, charge higher rates, and I book out. Usually I'll say at least a month to get something finished. And um, I do book out and I'm booking into the holiday season right now. And then um, I riskly know how much I can get done in a month. And if I have a lot of travel or other commitments, I'll, I'll just try to give a client a realistic timeline. I think it's important to undersell and over deliver. <laughs> There's nothing worse than saying, I'll get it to you in a week or two. And then start getting emails from them. So I try to be realistic with, with what's, with what's possible. So that's awesome. What does your team look like? You mentioned that you had your, you know, lead of production that was in your Missouri uh, studio. Um, but what does it look like now that you've moved and now that your business framework has changed? Yes. Yeah, so I outsource, I work with a printer. I still have my printer. If it's I, I try to limit the amount of time that I'm printing. I feel like my skills are better used painting and working on new stuff. So I have a, a printer here in Texas and he's amazing. His name is John and he is photographer by trade, but just geeks out on all the, all the, the paper and the ink substrates and all that. He, he's like, he loves printing and that's the type of person that you want. So um, I do je clay prints with him and the orders come in through ShipStation and I'll usually, if I need to tweak the files or like edit anything, I'll get those to him in the morning. That's kind of my left brain admin work that I do in the morning is like keeping the files and the orders moving through the system and making sure that he has everything he needs. And then after I'll hand embellish canvases a lot as well and send them to, I have a framer um, and a, who stretches and like builds the canvases and frames here in Texas as well. And I still work with a framer in Los Angeles as well for people that want to just pick up things locally there. As well. That's amazing. So you essentially have like four different areas with at least four different areas with your, you know, production communities. You have Los Angeles, you have New York, you have Missouri, now you have Texas. Yes. Yeah. That's I think incredible. It's, it's important for like, I have a big order that's coming in through Texas and this lady is in Dallas. She's a designer and the shipping on it was going to be astronomical <laughs> and if, but if she just goes and pick it up it's going to save her thousands of dollars so it's it's been nice to set up these trusted relationships with with people in different regions and I work as a framer in Miami as well and as you know it takes a long time to I mean I was getting samples back from different framers and printers in Texas for basically uh, at least six months and I just started working with these guys full-time 
um, here in Texas. So, but it's a lot, it takes a lot of really bad samples to find people that you like working with. It seems just based on how you've built your life that you are an ardent researcher. Um, Is that true? It seems, it seems like you are very thorough with, with how you move in life and also in your business. I, yeah, I would, I've never thought of myself as that way, but yeah, I do kind of geek out on, on that stuff. And with art, you are essentially buying a picture of something. So the quality, I'm a big stickler on the quality of it. I've gotten so many samples back from different printers and it'll be on like cheap poster paper to shiny. I know I have a certain aesthetic that, that it needs to, um, standard that it needs to reach. And, um, yeah, it's important. Otherwise that's how you get the, that's how you get the repeat clients too. If you get, you can sell one painting, but if they get derives and it's not quality at all, they're never going to order again. So it's very important to me to establish those relationships and have clients for life. Totally. Speaking of your aesthetic, I feel like when I first met you, you were pretty much exclusively doing animals. Is that still the case for you? That is my, that is probably what I'm most known for. My personal aesthetic, I like mixing animals with abstracts. I have an abstract piece behind me. I'm definitely more minimalist in my own personal aesthetic, but I always, I will always paint animals. That's like, that's, that's what comes naturally to me. And I feel like in, in portraits, just in general, I mean, faces of people and animals are what I will always circle back around to. When did you realize that of yourself? Um, I, I mean, I was always painting animals. The first, the first painting that I ever made that made somebody happy, I painted a a dog portrait named Dozer for my second grade teacher. And we're still in touch. And she said she still has the painting, but I remember I didn't want to draw it. So I didn't want to draw the whole body. I just wanted to draw like a close up of the wrinkles in his, in his face. And it's just what I've always, always gravitated towards. And so I was trained in portraiture. So was there a particular animal that really put that on the map for you? Uh, probably the, the ostriches. And that was, um, the first one was requested by an interior designer called Holly Westoff, who I still work with. And she requested one for a client. And I, as soon as I did it, I was like, oh, that was so fun. And I painted a whole bunch more and I would always bring ostriches the flea market with me and those would always sell out and it's yeah I will always paint ostriches for sure. you also name all of your animals where where did that come from when did you decide <laughs> to do that because I also want people to understand that yes Rachel is an artist but you're also a genius at branding you have branded your aesthetic and what you do so distinctly um and there's a story and personality behind not just obviously what you're looking at, but but the operational side of it as well, like the business side of it. There's such intention behind everything that you do. Thanks. You're giving me a lot of credit. A lot of it. Just I'm seriously like, <laughs> I will shout this to the rooftops until the end of time. Like I'm such a fan, such Aww. a fan. Feeling is mutual, girl. <laughs> I like that you name your jewelry as well. It helps. It helps. You remember it. I mean, it's, I would be my way of keeping the animal straight because it, people, I would clients be like, can I have a draft? And I'm like, well, which, which one? Cause they all have different styles and personalities. And usually the name would come organically. I mean, I have a whole list in my phone of boy and girl baby names, and I'm constantly adding to the list. And usually it comes to me as I'm painting it. 
I will not force a name. If I, if a name doesn't come to me right away on something, I'll name it like African giraffe or something. Yeah. So this is very, very basic, but, um, if it, yeah, a lot of times it comes, it comes as I'm painting it and I'll just, I'll just know it. How many different collections do you have currently? I need to, I need to like taper it back a little bit. Sample <laughs> sale. I, uh, <laughs> I went wild. I've been doing a painting every day this year. So uh, the ones that, wow. have, the ones that haven't sold or gone to custom clients, um, I'm, I have a lot of, lot of paintings in the sample sale. So um, I have about a dozen like distinct collections that, that I can pull from. If people are saying, oh, we want kind of this vibe or this color scheme, I've got about 12 that I can send that are curated and actually make sense altogether. But my, my style is still a little bit all over the place. So the collections kind of make it, make it a little more cohesive and make it at least make sense a little bit to me. I'm obsessed with your abstract paintings. I still have your, I think it was a Los Angeles painting. Yes, the, the black with the gold yep. foil. Oh, heaven. And it's, you know, a piece of LA. It's like, you know, it's a piece of my dear friend, but it's also a piece of my former home. It's such a special piece. How do you stay relevant and current in this vast landscape of the creative world and of artists? I think there's a, there's a fine line between constantly evolving and changing your style and also staying true to who you are. There's certain fads and trends that don't feel authentic to me to jump on. And I just won't go, I won't go near them. Um, working with interior designers that are established and they know that trends will come and go. So I feel like that has kept my aesthetic. I'll give them a lot of credit because that's who really like will fine tune my style and co commission things that keep me on trend but also timeless because you don't want, you want art to last forever and you want to love it forever. So I think avoiding trends, I was a little nervous, like with llamas specifically, I was painting llamas long before they were trendy and I will continue to paint them. I know they've like had their moment, sloths are having a moment, all that. I think doing it in a way that feels timeless. Like I will probably not do llamas that have like floral crowns and so nothing against that. That's just not, not my personal aesthetic. So avoiding, avoiding those trend traps, I would say, that's how you stay relevant. On, totally. Trend without being trendy. So I think one of also the most genius things that you've done is how creative you've been with your partnerships and with your streams of revenue. The fact that you collaborate with interior decorators and interior designers to put artwork in other people's homes, to put artwork in, in hotels. Like that's so, that's so not where my brain would have gone, but that's so brilliant because of course walls need art and there are walls everywhere. It's not just people's homes, it's hotels, it's, you know, other establishments. When did that light bulb go off for you? Um, again, you're giving me a lot of credit here. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I a think it's my journey has been saying yes to things, showing up 110% and then things kind of snowball from there. So the, the hotel project that I did, I met um, two of the designers, Nicole Asil and Leslie Kale at the flea market, of course. And they asked me to do a feather piece that was gonna go above the concierge desk at this hotel. And in LA, you know, there you meet a lot of people that promise big things that don't necessarily deliver. So I was optimistically um, realistic <laughs> I 
about what this collaboration would, would turn into. They, again, they like undersold and over-delivered on what they had planned. Just like, we have a little hotel project. And um, turns, I mean, they do, they do incredible work. Look up Studio Collective. They're constantly doing beautiful hotels all over the world, but they very much undersold what they were working on. And they asked me to do this feather piece. I said, yes, I got it to them. I think within the week, um, we worked really well together. They communicated everything very clear. They're upfront about everything, which I, I love working in that style. And uh, then it turned into another piece, turned into another piece. And then they pitched me an idea. They said, here's our budget for each room. Do you think that you could do all of the work for the hotel? And I said, sure. So um, I blocked off. I didn't do any shows that fall. I blocked off basically the whole fall to do, um, yeah, I did like 200 paintings for that hotel. And that's turned into, that still is a big revenue generator for me. If people stay at the hotel, then I sell prints and canvases of the art that's in the room. So it's such a, it's a magical hotel and people have their honeymoons there or weddings there and they want to bring that experience and that feeling back to their home with them. So um, it's, I met a lot of incredible people through that, through that project. But That's so cool. You're saying thinking I was going to do hospitality. <laughs> it just, just turned into that. <laughs> Fair. You're saying that I'm giving you too much credit, but I highly disagree. And I say that only because there is such a willingness to do whatever it takes and a lack of ego on your end where you just are, you know, down to brass tacks, roll your sleeves up, get your feet wet and just do it. I mean, you just have this incredible work ethic and this willingness to just provide excellence or, or you know, deliver excellence in everything that you do. So I, I want our listeners, especially you know, folks who are considering going into a creative field or maybe those who are in, you know, an entre a creative entrepreneurial field and are feeling stuck, do learn from Rachel and literally do everything. <laughs> do, do whatever it takes. You, you have no idea where your next sale, where your next stream of revenue is going to come from. And it could come from something that might not really make sense at the time, but we, we don't see the last chapter, right? We're so in our lives in this moment that we don't know where one thing can lead. Yeah, that's so, so true of, I think, yeah, showing up 110%, not being afraid of the, the dirty work. I mean, all the trade shows, you see the, the finished picture of the booth, but 90% of the work that went into that is sweaty, hot, <laughs> gross work of building things and schlepping things. I, mean, I always joke that I'm a professional mover and I mean, driving the trailer by myself across the country. It's, it's a lot of that unglamorous work that, that that's the route that I've chosen. You definitely can do the fine art gallery route. I did not, I did not go that route. And I'm, this feels more authentic to who I am. There's not, there's not a big ego involved in what I do. And love that. That's how you stay fresh as well. I think that the moment that I think I'm too good to do something, I, I may not be a good fit for something and I have no other people that are better fits, but I'll never be above doing anything if it, if it helps my career. So let's talk about the unglamorous side of being in the creative industry. Cause I think that people similarly look to me and go, Oh, it's so glamorous all the time and she makes sparkly things. So everything must be sparkly. That's probably like 15% of my reality, maybe even 10. Um, what does your behind the scenes look like? 
currently the 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 current like grind that I'm in is moving moving into a proper studio space here. I'd had things in storage units. I had a studio in Austin that I was kind of half in, and it's like consolidating everything and just getting reorganized. I'm sure you know with a cross country move, and I had three in the last two years, I had stuff, <laughs> I mean, in bins everywhere. It's just kind of regrouping and resettling and organizing. It's not glamorous, but it's not something that I could have somebody else do either. You just like have to, I'm getting everything resorted and, and organized and labeled and properly in a spot, in one spot. <laughs> so. That's amazing. Three moves in two years. How do you keep your sanity? Um, you're a very grounded human. Like you're a very like centered and grounded human. How do you maintain that sensibility and, you know, amongst the chaos, so to speak? I actually, I live a pretty structured life Monday through Friday. I'm all about like doing 80% of your life should be really boring and taking care of the stuff of eating, eating good meals at home, exercising, getting out in nature, listening to podcasts, going to church, filling that spiritual tank, emotional tank, going on dates, ma making time for those human connections as well. I think that's as much of being a creative as like keeping the, the tanks full and healthy. So you're not depleted and feeling like you're like the, the, the well is empty. So when did you find your rhythm or have you always had it? No, no, definitely not. <laughs> um, I think in the last five years, I've grown up a little bit and priorities have changed where, um, yeah, I think you make time for the things that matter and that keep you, I found the things that work that keep me healthy emotionally, spiritually, physically, and you stick with, stick with what works, but it's, it was definitely a <laughs> work in progress up until that point. And I still am. Such is life. Do you find that your success has mirrored that structure that, you know, as you've, as you've grown into your rhythm and found your rhythm and created more structure in your life, has your success kind of rewarded you in that regard? Where I think for me, at least when I was younger, it's like, just hustle, hustle, hustle. And it's like, yes, very important, but there's other elements to it. I'm, I'm curious as to your experience. I think focused hustle is important. The first like eight years, I was just hustling and saying yes to anything and everything. And I did not have a healthy life work balance. I think that's okay in your twenties. And then your body starts to shut down. I had some health issues that started, I wasn't sleeping enough as I know you mentioned that yeah. as well. And, uh, my body kind of forced me into slowing down a little bit. And I was, I was also very afraid of getting in a serious relationship. I feel like I was kind of a commitment phobe, um, because I thought that a partner would take, take me away from my real focus, which kind of sounds sad <laughs> looking back, but it was a really big fear of mine that it was like, well, I don't have time for somebody else. That also sounds very selfish. I had lots of time for my friends, but the idea of a serious relationship seemed very, like it was going to be threatening to my career. In reality, it's been the opposite. It's actually made me like have more structure and tighter boundaries with work. And I get as more, I get more done <laughs> than I did with like not having structure and just working 14 hours a day versus like knowing I have these like set work times that I'm going to stop and I'm going to have dinner with my fiance and we have date nights. And it's actually made me more, made me more productive in less amount of time. So that's amazing. That's also refreshing to hear because it's certainly not the narrative that I think is presented to 
young entrepreneurs, especially young female entrepreneurs. Yeah. And I, I still don't believe that you can have it all. I, I now the thing that I'm afraid of, I'm like, how do we bring a kid into this? My fiance has his own business as well. It's like, we're finally, I think the move to Texas, just this, the slower life pace. And it makes everything seem possible that I'm, it's more likely to happen that we can, we have the options to have children and have businesses and have time for each other and all of, and, and, and all those things. When I was living in LA, it seemed a little, <laughs> a little daunting to try to bring a child into that lifestyle. In a word, impossible. Yeah. Have you, you, know? have you found that shift of moving, moving to beyond, beyond. I, I mean, astrologically, this is a really good place for me to be. Um, but also like spiritually and physically, like the lifestyle of Florida is much more conducive. Cause I'm always going to have the hustle just as you're always going to, no matter where you go, you will forever have the hustle and be a hard worker. Um, it's more of how I'm showing up in that regard and what I'm choosing to do. I feel like I have more freedom in choice as opposed to just working all the time not to make ends meet because, you know, my business was very successful in LA, but there just is that added pressure by nature of the reality of, of the lifestyle. I love hearing that, but I'm, you know? I'm happy for you. That's, that's Thank amazing. you. And likewise, <laughs> how has your faith impacted your life and your business? I definitely think, as you said, like keeping that well filled it's, it's what sustains me even when, when life, which it's inevitable and work is going to be hard and you're going to go through really hard seasons. It's what gives me the strength to, to keep doing what I'm doing. And also I'll pray and I'll, I'll ask God for inspiration. If I'm feeling uninspired, I will basically ask to be a conduit, which sounds, sounds pretty hard, but I'm like, I, I want to, I'll be your hands, give me ideas and I will make them happen, but I'm ask actually like ask God for ideas and he always gives them to me. Always <laughs> delivers. And he yeah. has a sense of humor. I tell you what. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's the funny one. That's yeah. for sure. So what is next for Rachel Brown, the human and Rachel Brown, the brand? Um, I'm getting married in a month. <laughs> so we're, we're semi eloping with family to Italy. So that's been, it's been, it's been really hard to actually stay focused on work and plan all of this. And it's, it's a beautiful season of life personally that I'm in, but it's like hard to rein that in and stay focused on work. I'm actually like looking forward to the, the boring again after post-wedding and honeymoon and after everything settles down to just like get back. I love being in my groove and in a routine and getting through holiday madness and not, I shouldn't say getting through it. I want to thrive through the holiday madness and be super intentional about the projects that I take on and um, be settled in a place that I can have a great holiday season. And then January of next year, the goal is to start uh, painting some large human portraits again and um, like taking classes and stuff and just staying staying fresh and um, carving out time for that. That's my goal for 2022 is taking on a few more personal projects that are, that are bigger than what I've been working on and training, a little more training. That's amazing. I can't believe we're already close to the holiday season again. I know. <laughs> Crazy Tim. So where can we find you and how can we support you? Uh, Instagram at Rachel Brown art. And my website is rachelbrownart.com. 
That's right. I try to stay. I don't really do too much on Facebook or Twitter or anything. I'm, I should be on TikTok, maybe in 2022. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> well, I but love it. In, in my website. Thank you so much for being here. I adore you so much. And you are just such a wealth of inspiration and knowledge. And I'm so excited for our listeners to hear your story. Thanks for having me. Of course. Holy smokes, folks, that was just the best. A special thank you to our guest, Rachel Brown, for coming on the show. Another thank you to our hosts at Dash Radio and our producers at Island City Media. If you liked this episode, you can listen to it again on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please leave a review so we can continue bringing you the content and the people that you love. Lastly, if you want to connect with me offline, you can find me at Marin Costello and Marin Costello Radio on Instagram. Have a beautiful weekend, and we will see you all next week. Of girl that likes to play A little suntan lotion might catch a ray